Hello, everybody. Welcome to Health Hackers episode 30. I'm Gemma Evans, journalist and presenter here in the UK. This is my series devoted to meeting and interviewing people doing pioneering things in health and well-being. My guest today is consultant clinical psychologist David Tricky. He's a trauma specialist. David has spent nearly 20 years working with families and children, traumatized families and children. And he also has extensive experience in dealing with children who have witnessed one parent murdering the other. He also acts as an expert witness and advisor to the police and the courts. And for the next 30 minutes, he'll be with us discussing trauma, traumatic experiences, PTSD, that's post-traumatic stress disorder, how we can help ourselves, our children, and other people. David, thank you for meeting me here. You're welcome. We are at the Anna Freud National Centre for Children and Families. So is this where you work? Yes, I'm here four days a week. What does the what does the organisation here do and what's your involvement? So the organisation really has three different parts. One part about research, we do a lot of research into uh, children that have various different mental health difficulties and how we can help them. We do quite a lot of training and teaching of other psychologists, other professionals, and we do some clinical work as well. And I mainly do the clinical work. I'm mainly a therapist. I do some research and some teaching, but I'm really a therapist. So you're mainly helping people? Yeah. Okay, so we're talking about trauma, and um, in the run-up to this interview, I was reading something the other day. It was about a study, and it said that 31% of young people in the UK had had a traumatic experience during childhood. So what does an experience need to be for you to call it a traumatic one? Well, there's a difference between what I might call a trauma and what the young person might call a trauma. And I can give you my broad definition of a trauma, but the most important thing is what it means to that young person. So there are some things that I would consider traumatic, and yet the young person doesn't find it traumatic. There are things that I might think, well, that sounds difficult, but is it really a trauma? And then you speak to the young person, you listen carefully, and it clearly did traumatise them. So broadly speaking, the definition would be an event or events that are so overwhelming that the person can't cope with them, and they have a reaction to those events that outlasts the actual events. So the events stop, and yet they still have an impact from those events. And what kind of event could that be? Would it be a, like a one-off event, like a car crash? A bereavement or can it be a string of events could it be you've grown up in a house with a really difficult father for 18 years and it's a string of events yeah absolutely it could be both so it might be you get run over and months later you're still having nightmares you're still finding it difficult to sleep and you don't want to cross the road or it might be that you've had years and years of domestic violence, which has changed your view of the world and of the way that people are and the way that you are, and that is then causing problems. So it can be a one-off event or it can be a string of events. And when you have those reactions, um, does that mean you have post-traumatic stress disorder? Well, there's two definitions of post-traumatic stress disorder at the moment. They're pretty similar. There's some differences, but the similarities are to do with three groups of difficulties. The first group of difficulties is to do with the way the memory is stored. So the memory for traumatic events is different to the memory for non-traumatic events. It's a memory that is very volatile and very vivid. So it's easily triggered 
and it comes into mind, it feels as if it's happening again in the here and now. It's not a memory from back there and back then, but it's an experience that is happening again to you now, that's how it feels. It's stored in terms of the actual sensory information, so if you like the data of the memory rather than the narrative. So if I asked you about the last time you went to the cinema, you would find that story and tell us the story of going to the cinema. But when these traumatic memories are triggered, it's the actual sensory information that comes into mind and the person feels like they're re-experiencing it. So someone might continue to relive the way something felt or smelt. Absolutely. So it's very sensory based. It might be in nightmares or flashbacks or just these really intrusive memories or maybe just the sensations of the event come into mind. So that's one group of difficulties yeah. to do with the memory. The next group is to do with avoidance. So the young person who's been traumatised doesn't want to think about it, doesn't want to talk about it, they try to push it away. The nature of these memories is it keeps coming back into consciousness. And in fact, the very act of pushing it away makes it come back more. <clears throat> and then we have a group of difficulties to do with arousal, um, physiological arousal. So if you have a difficult, stressful event, you may have a, um, your stress response system will ramp up. So someone tries to steal your iPad and you have that shot of adrenaline, noradrenaline or cortisol, which allows you to either run away or push them off. And after that event's gone, you settle down and your system resets itself. That's a difficult event. If you have a traumatic event, then it outlasts the event. So when the event's gone, you stay on edge. So weeks, months, even years later, you can't sleep, you can't concentrate, you're hyper aroused all the time, you're on the lookout for the next person who might take your iPad, and if something makes you jump, you really jump. So you have this group of difficulties, memory and avoidance and physiological arousal. Is it possible for somebody to have PTSD but not know, and not know where it came from? Like someone could be, I don't know, dealing with panic attacks and they just don't know where they've come from. And it could have been something from 10 years ago. Is that possible? Yeah. So it might be that the way that memory reacts doesn't bring the actual uh, memory of the event, but your body remembers. So for example, someone who's abused by someone wearing a certain aftershave between the years of one and two years old, they may not have an explicit memory of that event, but they're 12 years old, they're walking along the street and a man wearing the same aftershave walks past them. And they don't go, oh, this reminds me of that abuse, but their body remembers. So they freeze and they panic and they may not know why. Um, what can you do if you think you have PTSD? Well, I suppose one of the first things to do is recognize it and notice that this isn't just anxiety that's come out of nowhere, it's anxiety that is the result of things that have happened to you. And then usually within the UK, via the GP, the family doctor would be the way to get a referral to the health services, mental health services that should be able to help. But actually there's other things that people can do. One of them is make sure you feel socially supported. So be with people that you know, love and trust. Um, and maybe talk to them. One of the big problems we have with PTSD is that avoidance. So the person doesn't want to talk about it because it's horrible and frightening. So they don't get to process that memory. They don't, meet, they don't get to make it into a narrative. And sometimes the people around them don't want to hear those stories. So the person doesn't get that opportunity. Sometimes the person is protecting those around them from hearing that story. So they deny themselves the opportunity to create the narrative. So if you have a you know, say someone did try and take your iPad and it was pretty uh, difficult experience, you would probably tell someone about it. If it happened to you on the way here, we'd never met before, but you would probably say, oh, you never guess what happened this morning. It's as if we are hardwired to tell stories about events. 
and that telling the story, usually to other people, takes the sight, smell, taste and touches of the event and we create a narrative, we create the story and that's the normal memory. If you were so distressed by it that you don't want to tell me about it or you're worried that I might get upset so you don't tell me or I don't want to hear about it, I say, no, we haven't got time to hear that, then we deny you that opportunity to tell the story and therefore this memory stays in its raw data format and that's the problem. So the avoidance is one of the big problems. So it's not useful to make someone talk about it, but it is useful to allow them to talk about it as and when they are ready to do so. Why is it that some people, I guess we see them as really tough and hard people. Think of someone who's fought in the war or who's been through something traumatic. You think, oh, they've seen things, they've really suffered and they're so hard, they're so tough. Are they really tough or do they just handle trauma better than someone else? Well, it's difficult to know what's going on inside their heads because very often people don't tell about their symptoms. So that person that looks like they've really managed all of that distress and trauma that they've experienced might be having horrible vivid nightmares that wake them up in a cold sweat. They may be more on edge all the time. They may lose their temper. Um, I spoke to one woman whose husband had been in the Navy and she said, I've had two husbands, the one that went off to war and the one that came back because his personality had changed so much. But she was the one that got to see it. The friends and the extended family didn't see that side of him. So they, it looked as if he was very, as if he was coping well. But in fact, he, he had post-traumatic stress disorder, but didn't want to talk about it. How had he changed when he came back? Well, partly his nightmares, so he wasn't sleeping well, but also his temper and his personality had changed. So. If you have that over-arousal of PTSD, then you're constantly on edge and it takes the slightest little thing to make you lose your temper. And you lose your temper much more strongly than you would have done before. If you, okay, taking away the Navy, say everyday life now, you're out and about something, you, you witness something awful. Someone jumps in front of a train and you think, oh my God, I can't believe what I've just seen. Is there something that a person can do in that moment that will help them deal with the trauma? So is there some kind of, I don't know, self-talk? Or is there something that they could do? Or should they go immediately, like ring a loved one and share it, like you were saying about being able to talk about it? Is there anything you can do to almost protect yourself from PTSD once you've seen or been involved in something traumatic? Certainly allowing yourself to talk about it when you're ready to do so would be a good thing to do. So we know that critical incident stress debriefing, according to the research, probably doesn't work and might make some people worse. And that's because that involves having the person think through and talk through the event, not at the time that suits them, but at the time that suits the debriefer. Okay, so it's got to be at the time that suits them. Yeah, it's got to be with the person that you yeah. want to do it with, not a stranger. You can't be interrogating someone immediately. No. Okay. I mean, you that might help some you people. You might have to for the police. But actually yeah. it might make people worse. And that's interesting. So the police interview is not about creating a narrative. The police interview is about extracting information. So in theory, a police interview immediately after you've seen that could be helpful because you're creating the story. But the way the interview is done isn't to help you tell the story from beginning through that awful moment until the end when you felt safe again. The police interview is extracting certain bits of information. So it's quite different to a therapeutic interview. So the way that I help children to tell their stories is very different to the way the police might tell the story. So the police are interviewing you because they want evidence to work out what's happened. But a therapist 
doesn't really care about the detail and who looked like what and who did what. They just want you to construct a narrative because that helps you process it. Yeah, exactly. And the details are not important to me as a therapist. They may be important to the child, so I would let them tell their story. But I don't care if there's one person behind them or two person behind them. The details and the accuracy is not important. It's creating a narrative that makes sense, that um, has this story that sort of has a beginning, a middle and an end, and an end where they feel safe now, even though they didn't at that moment. And also a story that is useful. So if the story is, some, I saw someone fall under the tube and therefore I'm never going on the tube again because it might happen to me, that's an unhelpful story. If the story is, I saw someone fall on the tube and it was such a tragedy, it was a really horrible event, but actually I'm safe and I'm just going to be a bit more careful next time I go on the tube and I'm going to look out for other people, that's a more useful story. So as well as the memory being the problem of what the person has witnessed, also the meaning sometimes causes problems. And it's really important that therapists or carers and parents help people to make useful and truthful meaning. So it's got to be accurate, you can't yeah. pretend it didn't happen. But it's got to be accurate and understand that this doesn't mean all tube trains are dangerous if that was the event. And it's not that the whole world is dangerous. It's not that everyone is out to get you. It's not that you're always vulnerable. So you have to create a meaning that is useful as well as a narrative that is processed. When you're working with families, do you ever have a situation where the family has gone through something traumatic? Maybe you can give us an example. And then you're, you're seeing all of them and you're discussing this narrative and it suddenly becomes apparent that they've all got different, completely different views of how this event unfolded. Yeah. Does that ever happen? And then how do you convince, well, you, you wouldn't know what's true, so how do you kind of tie it up so everyone's yeah. on the same page? Yeah, and that becomes really important because if I'm seeing a child and a family for one hour a week, that means there's 167 hours when they're with each other or with their school friends. So in fact, a lot of that processing of the narrative happens between sessions. It doesn't all happen in the therapy session. So if I can help the family to create a useful and truthful narrative, that's gonna be a good use of my time. But you're right, what if they have different accounts, they saw different things, they believe different things? And so it can be really helpful in therapy to have that out in the open and to discuss it and to allow them to create a shared narrative. It's as if they've all got different parts of a jigsaw puzzle and I help them to put them together. And then they're able to talk about it outside of the session as well. And does that provide relief to PTSD? Just putting a story together and understanding what actually happened? So the best intervention, according to the evidence we have for PTSD, is trauma-focused CBT. And that would really have three core components. One is dealing with the memory. So we help the person, possibly with their family, to create the narrative and process the memory. Dealing with the meaning. So what does this event mean to you? And if the person says what it means, then the world is dangerous, I'm vulnerable and people are out to get me. Well, we would help them to construct a more useful meaning from the event. And the other one is uh, very often they will maintain their problems by avoidance. So we try to help them reduce their avoidant coping. So therapy really involves those three components, processing the memory, reducing avoidant coping, and helping to make a more useful meaning of the event. And when you say processing the memory, does that mean fully acknowledging it and just seeing it for what it is rather than suppressing it? Yeah, absolutely. So we provide the person the opportunity to think it through. And with young children, I might do that through play, through puppets or sand play or the doll's house. With older people, we might write it out, 
sometimes um, they'll dictate it to me. I'll be like their secretary typing away and then we can add bits as they remember new bits. Um, sometimes we might do reliving where the person closes their eyes and tells the story in first person present tense. So I'm walking along the road and now I can hear the noise coming up behind me and suddenly I feel the knife coming into my shoulder. And that is a way of really processing the memory, creating the narrative. Mm. And previously, before the therapy, they don't want to do that because that memory comes into mind, that's horrible, so they push it away. So they don't have that chance to tell the story. And in therapy, we give them the courage, perhaps, and the opportunity to tell it. Um, and sometimes it takes a long time to get there because if the message of the trauma is you can't trust other people, you can't trust other people that are supposed to look after you, and then suddenly well, if someone has therapy been abused, maybe, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that could be the meaning of the event, that you, I, don't, I can't trust anyone. Um, and then they come into therapy. I've got to find a way to overcome that barrier so they trust me enough to tell me the story of what happened. And, and they shouldn't avoid it. So you're... I'm thinking here, I'm comparing this to myself. So I, I've had a fair few bone breaks in my life. One ski trip, broke my pelvis in four places. Never wanted to ski again. Ever, ever, ever. But then got enough courage up to actually go skiing again when I was filming for a TV show in the Alps, but I felt safe because I had lots of people around us. Right. But I've done that and I never ever want to go skiing again. I did enjoy skiing, but I never want to do it again. Now I understand what you're saying about avoidance. So I could make myself go skiing again, yeah. but then if I had another accident, oh my God, I'd be back to square one. Then how yeah. do you deal with someone who, okay, so someone far more serious, was actually abused and then they learn that not everybody is a threat but they get abused again or something happens then when you see that person again how difficult is it for you to convince them that no really everybody isn't a threat if they've experienced it again yeah well that's really interesting so my job as a therapist is not to convince them because that might work for the duration of the therapy session but actually then they'll get out there and I mean, take that example of someone who's been abused more than once and we talk about it and I can convince them, say, that not everyone is a threat and then they go outside and a man walking on the pavement looks at them in a certain way and it triggers that memory of the abuse. Now that abuse memory is about survival and it takes precedence over all the clever, sophisticated thinking we did in therapy. So it resets their system that actually I'm not safe, I'm not safe. So I need to help them to create their own meaning of that event, not give them mine. Um, and it's really important that my job is just to help them find a truthful and useful meaning for that event, not impose my own, because it might not fit. And similarly, it's interesting when we think about what I think must have been the worst moment of traumatic events, I often am completely wrong. And it's the children, will, if you listen carefully, will tell you when the worst moment is. And it's, so our job is to enable that spontaneous processing and that spontaneous meaning making rather than impose our meaning on them. Parents have a really important role. So quite often, the meaning that a person makes in an event is based on their parents' reaction and the stories told within oh, the family. Oh really, what they watch their parents' reaction and then oh, they yeah. think, this is how I'm meant to respond. Yeah, so if you're having an operation I mean, say when you had your skiing mm. accident, if there was someone with you and they looked at your broken pelvis and they showed a particular expression, that's gonna change your impression uh. of, of that, of that mm. event. Um, when I was 14 years old, I was beaten up by eight skinheads. Now, when I got home, 
my dad answered the door. And I think that's one of the things that made it non-traumatic because he opened the door, he closed the door behind him so my mum couldn't see the mess I was in. And he said something that validated I'd had a horrible experience but wasn't melodramatic. He said, you look like you've had quite a night, shall we go to hospital? Now if my mum had answered the door, she, may have, she might have burst into tears, growled me and gave me a big colour. And suddenly I would have thought, oh, hang on, maybe this is worse than I thought it was. I've worked with a number of children who, following car crashes, have been told either in the ambulance or at hospital, oh, you're lucky you could have died. And for some of them, they go, oh, yeah, you're right, actually, it's not that bad, I could have died. But others, they go, I could have died. So that one thing that's been said to help them has actually become the trauma, because suddenly it's changed the meaning that they gave to that event. So the people around us are really key in helping us to interpret those things. Families play a big role. So if I can help a family to discuss the event in a helpful but truthful way, that's going to be a good use of my time. So what would your advice be to a parent who has a child who, who goes through something traumatic? So the first thing is to help them feel safe. I mean, this is really advice to schools To be really as calm, well. maybe, as well, like your dad opening the door. Yeah, but you need to also validate what's happened. You can't be dismissive. So oh, it's not that bad, don't be dark, go to oh bed. God, yeah. you know, that doesn't help because I think, well, actually, you're not letting me express how scary that event was. So this advice would be true for head teachers and teachers at school as well as parents. First of all, help them to feel safe. So uh, not expose them to ongoing threat. Perhaps monitor what they're watching on TV. So thinking about 9-11 or the bombs in London or Manchester Arena bombing or Grenfell. You know, we just have more and more exposure to those worst moments of the event. And is that going to help them feel safe? Probably not. So first is help them to feel safe. Help them to calm down. What is it they need to help them calm down? Do they need a bath? Do they go and play football? Do they need to learn some relaxation? Something that helps them to reset their physiological stress response system. Help them to feel supported and connected. Now that might be with the parents, so spending more time with parents, it might be with their friends. Help, help them to feel they're not alone. Help them to feel they have some control over what's going on. So you don't need a stranger to suddenly arrive and try and do something to the child. You want the child to feel they have some control over what happens next. And try and help them to think about the future and have a sort of hopeful perspective. And then allow them to talk about it as and when they're ready. And don't rush in with correcting their sense of how scary it was. Just don't rush in and say, oh yeah, but you didn't die, did you? You're fine. Allow them to say, you know, it's really frightening. And then saying, what happened next? And what happened next? And allow them to realize that, for example, that was a one-off event. It doesn't mean the whole world's frightening. So you sort of help them to tell the story rather than give them the story. I mean, with younger children, actually, parents will donate the narrative. They will be talking about what happened and the children will pick up on what the parents say. Talk to me about EMDR. This fascinates me because I, um, I'm interested in these kind of uh, techniques that can help minimize stress and process. Uh, last summer, I did a piece about EFT, Emotional Freedom Technique. That's at healthhackers.uk, listeners and viewers. Um, and I'd read about how effective that had been for PTSD along with EMDR. And I know that you practice EMDR. Tell us about it, what it is, what it does, and how it can work to help PTSD. Well, it's actually very similar to trauma-focused CBT. So if trauma-focused CBT is about processing the memory, creating a useful meaning, and reducing avoidant coping, EMDR has, 
helps the person, enables the person to bring to mind the worst moments of the events and to recognize the feeling that goes with that and to acknowledge the thought that goes with that event, I'm gonna die might be the thought. And then also to bring in a more useful thought, but I survived might be the thought, I'm strong, I'm resilient. And then you bring all of that to mind whilst having some other stimulus as well. So it's very often eye movements. So you might be following the therapist's fingers whilst you focus on all those things. So you, you would have a patient, they can be maybe talking out loud what they went through, this traumatic experience, and you'll be moving your finger like that in front of them. Yeah. And they just have to watch the finger. Yeah, and bring up the feeling, the thoughts, where in the body they feel that, how strong is that feeling. So how long, how long would you be going like that in front of someone's face for? Well, you might have a whole session, like but you would stop. Yeah, you, well, you would have as quite a lot of preparation and some time afterwards to kind of reset. But it could be most of the session could be the processing. And you start with that worst moment, you do the eye movements, and you then take a breath and say, what have you got now? And often the image will fade or the image will move on to the next step. And the thoughts, you get them to rate how strongly they believe the different thoughts. And all this helps them to, if you like, it breaks the link between the negative thought and the event and strengthens the link with the positive thought. I'm resilient, I survived. So how, how does that work? What's it doing to the brain? Why is staring at your finger going back and forwards while you talk and feel something traumatic? How does it eliminate it? Yeah. It's fascinating. It is. We don't know how it works. And people that say they do know how it works, I think are guessing. I don't think we have any clear ideas yet of how it really works. We know that it does work, so there's enough evidence to show it works, particularly with adults, but also with children and young people. Can you do it on yourself? Yeah, you could do. Really, you could sort of sit at home and just go like yeah, this? Yeah, or, or so you might tap your knees, or some people do a butterfly hug where they put their arms across. But do you have to stare at your hands? No, no. So, so it's you could this just be going like this because while it's you're talking this. through? Yeah. But I, working with children and young people, I prefer them to do the processing not on their own. Yeah. I worry a little bit about what might happen if, they, if we say, all right, go off, this is your homework, go and think through the worst moment of your life when you thought you were going to die. You know, I'd much rather they do that either in therapy or with their carers. Um, and we don't really know whether this actually has, is an important component, I would say, based on the evidence. Other people would say this is absolutely vital. I'm yet to be convinced by the evidence. And the evidence generally is stronger for trauma-focused CBT, so the revision of the NICE guidelines for PTSD said do trauma-focused CBT first. If that doesn't work or the person doesn't like it, then do some EMDR. Um, why do some people get PTSD but others don't? So if we look at risk factors for PTSD, um, the things that people arrive at the event with make a small difference. So females, for example, are a bit more likely to get PTSD. Uh, people who are, let me think of some other examples, people who have had a history of difficult events are a bit more likely to get PTSD. People with a history of psychological problems are a bit more likely to get PTSD, but they're not big risk factors. The bigger risk factors are how big or bad the event was. Bigger than that is what the person thinks of the event. So were you afraid, were you fearful for your life is a bigger risk factor than an objective measure of how big or bad the event was. And then the things that happen afterwards are even bigger risk factors. So lack of social support for children, social withdrawal is a big risk factor. Families breaking down and not working well together is a risk factor. Deliberately thinking of something else 
to stop those memories coming in is a risk factor. And also how well your parent doing is an important risk factor. So if the parent is really struggling, then that seems to contribute to the child's PTSD. So those, the good news about that is there's lots of things we can do to help families function well, to help the person feel supported, to make sure the adult, the carer, gets the help that they need, and that's going to have an impact on the child. If PTSD is left untreated, what can that do to a person later on? Well, it becomes their personality rather than just a reaction to the event. So they may become incredibly cross and lose their temper very easily. They will still have those intrusive images. Um, if you look at the disaster in Aberfan in Wales more than 30 years ago, 30 years later, 30% of the people there still have PTSD. Remind us what happened. So Aberfan is when a big slack in a mining community, a big slack heap slipped into a school playground, killing some children and teachers. Now, 30 years later, those 30% of them still have PTSD, a problem for which we have pretty effective interventions. But because people don't share, they don't talk about it, they don't want to admit they've got difficulties, they deny themselves the opportunity to get the cure, to get the intervention that helps. Um, we're up on time. This has been fascinating, and I know you have a book coming out this, this year, year yeah. in December, all about dealing and managing with trauma. Yeah. Um, if people want to find out more about you, do you have a website that you could name? Yeah, I mean, davidtricky.com um, or the Anna Freud National Centre for Children and Families. This has been really, really interesting. Thank you so much. And just to recap again, if you think you are dealing with the effects of trauma and PTSD, you would advise going to the GP? Absolutely. What would they say when they get to the GP? I think I might have PTSD. That's what I'd say. Okay. Simple as that. Um, thank you once again, Health Hackers, for watching, and I'll see you next time. Thank you, David.